and let me invite the kids to come down for the time for young disciples. Come on down. Yeah. You can sit right here on the carpet. All right. Welcome. Welcome. So, I'm going to start by telling you a story about when I was 10 years old and my mom and dad took a trip to New York City because my dad was interviewing for a job there. And I had, my youngest brother was two, two years old, and my mom had never left him without, I mean, she'd never left in his whole life, and so he was really bummed. And I have this very permanent memory of him standing at this huge picture window in our house and looking up at the sky. Because we told him that mom and dad had gone on an airplane. And he had this really sad look on his face and a tear in his eye. Well, I brought an airplane today. Okay. To illustrate this, I'm going to throw it, but you got to wait. I got to wait. So today we're going to be talking with the adults about Jesus' ascension into heaven. Ascension is a big word that just simply means he went up into heaven and he was taken away on the clouds. But then there's a, two promises that are made. One he will return in the same way that he left. And that's the promise of the second coming, which we're going to celebrate when we get to Advent this year. And the second was, I'm going to send you a helper, the Holy Spirit, who will be with you always to the end of the age. So when Jesus went up, it, it was not like this. Watch what happens to this paper airplane. Now you notice it, it went up, it, it went up better when I was practicing, uh, but gravity brought it down. And gravity always brings things down. But Jesus did not come down because he is more powerful even than gravity. Part of his ascension means, yes, we don't get to see him and touch him like the disciples in the first century did. But part of his ascension is so that he can be with all of us through his Holy Spirit whenever we invite him to a conversation. Go? Well, I think Miss Emily has it. So as you go to your classes today, I want you to think about the promises of Jesus, that he will always be with us by his Holy Spirit and that he will come again in the same way that he left. Let me pray for you. God, thank you so much for this, these great and precious promises of Scripture from our Lord himself that he will be with us. We thank you for your presence with us now by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Jesus, that you, your promise is sure that you will come again and join us. Just like my parents returned but even better. 
We thank you as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Have a great Sunday school with your teachers. You can just put it on the, on the pew there. Thank you. Yeah. Well, good morning and welcome to all of you here in the sanctuary and those of you who are with us online this morning. We're, we're glad to, to be with you. Well, I'm sort of going down memory lane today. This is a picture of uh, the atrium at Regent College in Vancouver, Washington. And this was my very first seminary teacher, John Stott. And in 1979, I was 22 years old. What was I doing starting seminary? But three weeks in Vancouver, sitting under John's teaching, taking us through the, the Acts of the Apostles. It was a transformative experience for me. I had gone to the University of California, and I had wonderful professors, of course. Very few of them were Christians. And here was a man every bit as smart as my professors who knew Jesus Christ intimately and who had studied the scriptures his entire life. And he brought the book of Acts alive. He helped us realize that this was in fact the book that started the whole thing, that talked about how that group of uneducated men and their female companions, including the mother of Jesus and his brothers, began a movement that would change the world. That class shaped the entire trajectory of my ministry. And so this fall, we are going to be studying each Sunday the book of Acts. And I encourage you to read it again if you've read it before, maybe many times. Uh, but each Sunday, read ahead and get on the page with us as we take you through this amazing story of the early church. Sometimes a movie is great and they make a sequel and it's terrible. Other times the second movie is better than the first. Like Home Alone. I really liked Home Alone. But when they did Home Alone, Lost in New York, it was magical to see New York City. You know, Chicago is okay, but New York, oh, great childhood memories. Because as I was sharing with the children, my dad got that job and moved us, all of us, to New York City when I was 10 years old. But everyone that I've ever talked to agrees that Home Alone's three, four, five, and six are all universally bad. So I don't want you to think that the book of Acts is a sequel to Luke. It is not. It is not a sequel. It is the continuation of the story that Luke began in his gospel. And in fact, the whole story, the whole good news in Luke's mind is Luke-Acts together. And we should read them, really, as one book. Here's an outline, which I know you can't see very well, but an outline of Luke-Acts, and let me just walk you through it. The birth of Jesus in the context of world history and Roman rule. 
And then Jesus in Galilee, bringing, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And then he goes to Samaria and Judea, and then into Jerusalem. And then the heart of this two-part story that Luke wrote is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection and his ascension, which is foretold at the, in Luke 24 and then happens in Acts chapter 1. And then notice how the book of Acts is structured in big, broad strokes. The church in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and then throughout the Gentile world. And then the preaching of the gospel by Paul extends as far as Rome. And that's where the book of Acts ends. Acts is therefore the second half of Luke's explanation of how the gospel transformed people and history itself, beginning in Galilee through Jerusalem and then to the whole world, including the center of that world, Rome. So let's read our passage from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 14, as we get into this book. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. In the aftermath of Jesus' death and resurrection and the ascension, the world was changed forever. The veil of the temple in Jerusalem was torn in two, and hundreds of years of covenant tradition was rendered obsolete in the light of this salvific event of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. The gospel message had been planted in the world like a mustard seed, and soon it would begin to grow and expand throughout the known world. The followers of Jesus, this new reality didn't come with an instruction manual. They had a very few instructions. They had their memories 
of the teaching of Jesus, the parables, and his commands to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Well, here at Grace Commons in our 150th year, we find ourselves in a strikingly similar situation. The cultural traditions of the past have been broken down before our eyes, and we find ourselves in a post-Christian era. We can't just walk up to someone on the street and have a conversation and expect that they even know the story of the Bible in its bare outline. Boulder, this has been true for a long time. But it's true more and more all across North America. And so we find ourselves in this post-Christian era with diminishing resources, diminishing influence, aging facility, perhaps some tension in some of our relationships, and no codified roadmap forward. We are very much like those disciples, staring into the empty sky, asking ourselves, where do we go from here? But we know the story. This ragtag handful of Jesus followers from a backwater province of the Roman Empire who had no money, no buildings, no army, no political influence, no canon of New Testament scripture to guide them, no theology textbooks, no practical manuals, no seminaries, nothing really to help them understand how to be the church. And it was this group of what Luke calls unschooled men and women who began a movement that spread across the known world and altered the course of human history. More than any other group of people in human history, these very first disciples of Jesus shaped the entire world. And that's what Acts begins to tell us about. Ordinary people, by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, loving each other, building community, breaking down barriers, dealing with conflict, surviving persecution, started a movement that exploded onto the pages of history with a message so good and so revolutionary they were willing to proclaim it even if it meant being dragged into a coliseum and torn to bits by wild animals. The gospel they preached was that God has come near, that our sins can be forgiven, that death itself has been defeated. So if we can learn from these first followers of Jesus, if we can recapture a fraction of their faith and their zeal, if we can love one another as they did, if we can work through the challenges and the conflicts that are inevitable in any human institution, if we can let go of our idols, if we can be one in Christ, if we can trust in the power of the Spirit, we can see God transform our lives and our city and county and our world once more. And here's how it happened. Here are some of the big, main, 30,000-foot view themes of this book. 
The foundation of our faith, of the Christian faith, is in fact the resurrection of Jesus. That death has been defeated once and for all by the power of God raising Jesus from the dead. Second, the source of our power as believers is not our theology, our morality, or our strategy. The source of our power is the Holy Spirit. We might need to move slightly on the spectrum from Presbyterian to Pentecostal. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. The source of our power is the Holy Spirit. The ROI, return on investment, that we seek as a church should first and foremost be the fruits of the Spirit. And we should expect persecution, not prominence, as a result of following Jesus. Those are the big themes that we will be exploring in more detail as we go through this fall sermon series. But let's get a little more. My job today is to give you some more background, to, to channel my inner John Stott, and to teach you the context that this teaching and example that we're going to learn about comes from. So the title of the book of Acts comes from the Greek word praxis, a, a word often used in early Christian literature to describe the great deeds of the apostles or other significant believers. And this title, Praxis, accurately reflects the content of the book, which is a brief history, but much more than a history, that chronicles the lives of the key apostles, especially Peter and Paul, in the decades immediately following Jesus' ascension into heaven. Luke is the author of this work, and that was unquestioned throughout ancient times. The book shows it through by careful reading a clear progression from the gospel according to Luke, picking up right where Luke leaves off. They were always meant to be read together. In fact, an ancient prologue written in one of those old Bibles, you know, that were illustrated beautifully, um, indicates that Luke was first a follower of the apostles and then became very close, a close companion with the Apostle Paul. And that's what we read as we read through this book. It begins with Peter as the main leader of the church, and it ends with Paul in Rome. There are many clues that you'll find as you read along with us in the book of Acts which reveal more about Luke's relationship with the Apostle. But there is no doubt that this man, who was well-educated, his Greek is the best in the New Testament, almost as good as Plato's Greek, not quite. He was an educated man. He was an eyewitness of everything that happened in the book of Acts. He even begins to speak in the first person plural as we read through the book in chapter 16, verse 10. In 17, in 21, and 28, you'll see the we, what are called the we passages. So where does all of the events of Acts happen? It ends in chapter 28 very abruptly. You kind of get to 28. I was just rereading it uh, last week, and, and it's like, why does it end so weird in such a weird way? Paul is in prison. 
There's no happy ending. He's just waiting to bring his appeal before Caesar. We know that in this history that Luke neither mentions Paul's death, he doesn't mention the persecution that broke out under Nero in 64 AD, and along with all of the other internal and external data, we believe that Luke probably completed this book between AD 60 and AD 62 while Paul was in prison in Rome. Now why is Acts so important? It's the only book in the entire Bible that chronicles the history of the church immediately after Jesus' ascension. All of Paul's and Peter's and John's epistles are best understood if you have the book of Acts as your background data, because then you'll read about Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders, and you'll understand a lot better the letter to the Ephesian church. And there are many other examples. So this is an incredible account of how the church was able to grow and spread out from Jerusalem into the entire Roman Empire in only three decades. The big idea of Acts, well, there's really two. Acts 1 to 12 is primarily about the ministry of Peter in Jerusalem and Samaria. And then Acts 13 to 28 is primarily about Paul and his missionary journeys throughout the Roman Empire. Acts is significant because it shows us the spread of the gospel, not only geographically, but culturally. It shows how this gospel that came out of a Jewish religion steeped in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, expanded cross-culturally. Peter begins by preaching to a small group in the upper room, but eventually even Peter gets to preach to the Gentiles. He didn't want to. He fought it. God had to send him a dream where an angel told him, do not consider what God has cleansed unholy, chapter 10. That experience was so life-altering for Peter that he began to share the gospel with many what were formerly unclean Gentiles. So the big theme, the take-home for us, is God wants his message of hope and salvation to extend to every nation, to every culture, to every language, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And as Dana Allen told us last week, we don't have to go to the ends of the earth because the ends of the earth have come here. Leslie Newbegin, who was a missionary in India for the first half of his adult life and then returned to his native Great Britain and pastored Presbyterian churches and wrote many, many books about his encounter with what he called in 1970 pagan England, post-Christian England. He writes this, the gospel is not just the illustration, even the best illustration of an idea. It is the story of actions by which the human situation is irreversibly changed. 
And later he says, mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament in the book of Acts is like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout which is not lethal, but life-giving. And so we're going to be challenged to share the gospel with the people in our life. I'm back to memory lane. Someone heard this message of the book of Acts and decided to join a fraternity so that he could share his faith with his fraternity brothers. And in his junior year, he was assigned an unchurched freshman named Randy Bear. And he had the courage and was filled with the spirit and got over the fact that I made it clear I had absolutely no interest in being evangelized but he was persistent. By that Christmas of my freshman year, I had given my life to Jesus Christ. But it's not just for college students, it's for all of us. Let me tell you the story of Frank Odom. This December, Frank would have been 100 years old. Ten years ago, when he died at age 90, the church was packed for his memorial service in West Palm Beach. Frank was born in 1922. He was a veteran of World War II and the Korean War, serving in the Army Air Corps. He then went on to a career in, with the largest public utility in Florida as a supervisor of all of their system operations. He was a longtime member and elder at Memorial Presbyterian Church. When I got to the church, Frank invited me to lunch to meet the new pastor. And we had a wonderful time getting to know each other. He was an avid sailor. He used to win many compositions. He was friendly. He had a ready smile and eagerness to help others. I'm reading from his obituary. But the story about Frank is when he went into assisted living. I went to visit him there, and I would, he, would, he didn't want to meet in his room. He wanted to meet down in the dining room. And he went around and introduced me to all of his friends. Here's my pastor. He comes here often to visit. You should talk to him. One time I was visiting Frank and, and we were praying because he was going to have surgery the next day to replace a hip. He was 88 years old. The doctor, he, he told me the story, he said the doctor told me that, Frank, you know, there's a, you're 88 years old, you're not in the best of health, there's a really good chance you won't survive this operation. You need to know that going in. And Frank looked him right in the eye and he said, Doc, I'm in so much pain that I need this surgery. So if I come through it, I win. But if I die on the operating table, 
I know that I'm going to meet Jesus Christ and live forever with him. And so either way, I win. That was Frank. He couldn't contain the message of the gospel in any setting that he was in, his entire adult life. And Frank knew the pain of human life. His wife died when he was only 70, and he lost both his sons before he went on to be with Jesus. So the challenge to us from this book that we will be reading this fall is to ask this question. What opportunities to share the gospel can we take advantage of in days to come? We'll see great examples of Peter and Paul powerfully presenting the gospel to individuals and groups. We'll see ordinary people like Philip talking with the Ethiopian eunuch. And in every case, these encounters are divine encounters that the Holy Spirit made happen. And all these people had to do was say, Lord, use me to share my experience. The apostles and, the, and these first Christians shine with evangelistic zeal. They're totally different than the fear-filled people that we see in the Gospels. But too often, our lives do not reflect that sort of change. We struggle with fears about how others will react to our faith. Or maybe we just don't want to break out of our routine long enough to invest in the life of someone else who needs the gospel. It is never too late to start. Frank's example, he was a, uh, I brought him once to meet with the session. He was a reserve elder. And I said, Frank, share what you're doing in assisted living. And he shared with a zeal that made the rest of us realize there was something missing in our Christian witness. It's never too late, we're never too old, to start sharing the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel. My prayer is that there could be an explosion of joy that would come from this corner into this community and spread beyond us, even to the ends of the earth. Last weekend, we heard over and over from the people that have grown up and have come to know Jesus Christ in this church who are now serving around the world, we were challenged. I encourage you to go back and read all the emails we send you because one of them had links to many of those talks, they were so encouraging. These are people that First Presbyterian Grace Commons reached with the gospel and discipled and sent out, and they came back to tell us it can happen again. And Acts will show us how. May God fill us with his spirit as we enter into this fall, seeking to be faithful men and women, disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the message of Acts. I thank you for 
the courage of Greg to reach me with the gospel and share his faith and be ridiculed by some of our fraternity brothers. Thank you for John Stott faithfully proclaiming and teaching and impacting so many lives, including mine. And Lord, we can all think of people in our lives that touched us, maybe for the first time, maybe at a time when we were hurting and led us back to the foot of the cross, back to the place where we can be filled with your spirit. So Lord, fill us with your spirit, we pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.